Medicine remains an art and a science. Are more sensitive cardiac markers clouding your good judgment? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment focusing on heart health. I am Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Joe Lex, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia. Dr. Lex was named Outstanding Educator of the Year by ASAP, the American College of Emergency Physicians, and the award actually changed names to be renamed after him. He has been teaching, writing, and talking about his passion, emergency medicine, for many years. Today we're discussing cardiac markers at the bedside, diagnostic testing, and clinical judgment, how it all ties together. Welcome, Dr. Lex. Thank you. It's great to be here. So cardiac markers have changed along with their sensitivity and specificity. What do clinicians need to know today? I think the biggest thing that people need to remember about cardiac markers is that they are only good for determining whether somebody has had myocardial damage, in other words, infarct. Too often I see young physicians trying to decide whether somebody has unstable angina based on more than just the history and the physical. They think that somehow these cardiac biomarkers are going to help them make a decision. If they're positive, yes, you have to consider the possibility of myocardial damage. But if they're negative, that doesn't necessarily mean your test is negative. You can go home now. So maybe you can't rule in, but what can you rule out with the cardiac markers within six hours of a presentation? Within six hours of the start of symptoms, you can fairly safely say that somebody has not had an infarct. In fact, when the American College of Emergency Physicians published its clinical policy statement, they made that clear. They did choose that six-hour window based on literature current at that time, and I'm not aware that that has changed. But if you look at their clinical policy, there is a quote. It says, no single serum marker used alone has sufficient sensitivity or specificity to reliably identify or exclude AMI within six hours after symptom onset. It's a pretty strong statement. Yes. You mentioned the literature. What do you caution people about reading and interpreting the literature? Oh, my goodness. This is a half hour in its own, how to avoid the pitfalls of reading the literature. There are certain words I look for when I read the literature, especially in cardiac biomarkers, because you're going to see terms like strong association or independent predictor or a negative predictive value. The problem with strong association is it has absolutely no correlation with sensitivity, specificity, accuracy or usefulness of a test. The example that I give is if a rooster crows at six o'clock and the sun rises at 10 after six, there's a strong association between the rooster crowing and the sun rising. But does that mean there's a cause and effect? Don't those statements really come from numerical comparison or statistical correlation? Pretty much, but it's just that. It's a strong association. It really does have no correlation with the usefulness of a test. The problem with predictors and associations is 
people want to use them to make clinical decisions. They want to be able to say, oh, gee, your test is negative, you can go home now, or your test is positive and you need to have more studies. Unfortunately, just because something is an independent predictor or a strong association, it doesn't help you make a diagnosis and it shouldn't help you make a therapeutic decision. What I also see is a lot of these studies reach an endpoint of disease-oriented evidence. It uses an intermediate or a disease-oriented outcome, such as lowering a particular number by 3%. Timmy3Flow, for instance. Timmy3Flow improves 18 minutes earlier, and therefore that is statistically significant. But what we have to caution ourselves when we're looking at this literature is what's the patient-oriented evidence? Patient-oriented evidence is things like who lived and who died? Did they get sicker? Who got admitted to the hospital? How long did they stay in the hospital? What was the cost of taking care of the patient while they were in the hospital? So you have to be real cautious and make sure that these biomarker studies that you're reading actually come up with patient-oriented evidence that matters rather than disease-oriented evidence. So then is the advice for our listeners that when you read these stories and they use some of the phrases you mentioned, which come back from statistical analysis of the study, take it back home to things you work with every day. Who lived, who died, outcome, cost. Exactly. Is this study going to help me take better care of my patient? Is my patient going to have a better outcome, a real outcome, than if I didn't use this particular study? Another problem I have with a lot of these is the negative predictive value. When you look at a study that talks about the negative predictive value, you have to recall what the denominator is. The numerator is true negatives, but the denominator is the true negatives plus the false negatives. So it's the number of patients who test negative. If the disease prevalence is low, the negative predictive value is going to look falsely helpful. The example that I like to give for this is patients with chest pain in the emergency department. The United States, the prevalence of acute coronary syndrome is probably about 10%. So if you take a coin out of your pocket and you flip it, the negative predictive value of a coin flip is 90% simply because the disease prevalence is only 10%. What about false positives in this setting? False positives lead to further testing, and the further testing is going to lead to more false positives and false negatives. There is no such thing as a perfect test. Even a cardiac cath only has about a 95%, 96% sensitivity and specificity. So you can miss up to 5% of people who have true coronary disease with a cardiac cath. So each test is going to have its own rate of false positive and false negative. It leads you further down the path. At some point, you've got to have a cutoff. At some point, you've got to say, you know, I'm going to accept a 1% miss rate, or I'm going to accept a 2% miss rate. I think it depends on the disease entity. But a friend of mine, Amal Matu, says there are two basic rules to chest pain in the emergency department. Rule number one is you can't diagnose every MI, and rule number two is you can't change rule number one, and I believe that. 
For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to a special segment on heart health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Joe Lex from Temple University, and we're discussing cardiac markers at the bedside, diagnostic testing, and clinical judgment. Isn't it really the timing of the markers that make them more sensitive in light of the history and the physical? And then you've got to superimpose that sometimes on the events where your patient is just not a good historian. Because people don't come in saying, well, I had chest pain that began four hours ago at noon. Sometimes they're a little off. The markers may be helpful, again, if they are positive. But if the history is unclear, I don't know how the negative marker can help you. You still have to make your decision based on the information from the history. So are we screwing up because we're not realizing some of these tests have to go hand in hand with risk stratification and not just active clinical disease? Oh, you definitely have to use these with risk stratification. There's no question about that. Also, you have to consider spectrum bias, workup bias, referral bias. All of that plays into using these tests accurately. What I mean by spectrum bias is, for instance, with BNP. BNP is a very accurate test when the odds of somebody having congestive heart failure are very small. But when you look at the literature, you find out that we're actually more accurate than BNP when the pretest probability is down around 5%. BNP is also very accurate when the odds of the patient having congestive heart failure are extremely high. But again, over 90%, we're actually more accurate. Getting back to medical education, do you think some of the things we're talking about today are emphasized enough in the curriculum that it's not just a question of a marker, but it's putting together the whole picture and the risk stratification? Do you think it's being taught well enough in medical schools? I don't know if medical school is the place where people are going to learn about this. I think this is something that people, I hope, learn about in residency. But these are things that I've had to teach myself once I was out in practice when I realized a lot of the studies that I was ordering, for one thing, didn't help me. For another thing, the results didn't make sense when I got them back. So where is the future going for cardiac laboratory diagnosis in the emergency department? What we're seeing are a lot of pre-necrosis biomarkers being studied. There's been a pre-ischemia biomarker out there for a while, ischemia-modified albumin, which looked very promising, but it hasn't really followed through. If you look at the whole cascade of what happens leading to myocardial necrosis and dysfunction, it starts with destabilization of the plaque. And from plaque destabilization, you go to plaque rupture. After the rupture, you get platelet aggregation factors, you get acute phase reactants, as the clot develops, you develop the ischemia and then into necrosis and eventually myocardial dysfunction. Many people are studying all of these pre-necrosis biomarkers now and trying to come up with something useful in the emergency department. The problem with them is they are so nonspecific. Now, if all you're worried about is ruling somebody out, you can stack test on test on test. And as long as each test is negative, you can lower your pretest probability to a very, very low post-test probability. But this is one of the fallacies in ordering a panel of tests. 
for instance, if you decide that somehow a serum ferritin level is going to help you diagnose somebody with chest pain, and the serum ferritin level is negative, you can say, okay, good, that's a negative study. The CRP is negative. The SED rate is negative. The fallacy of that being that eventually you're going to get a positive that you have to answer for. And this is the problem I see with the panels, which I think are going to be coming out over the next few years. I think what we're going to see is a panel of chest pain markers that has an inflammatory marker, a platelet aggregation marker, an ischemia marker, a necrosis marker, maybe a hemodynamic marker. And, yeah, we're going to be able to drive the sensitivity up above 99%, and we're going to be able to, quote, rule out ACS in the emergency department. But you see the fallacy in this huge number of false positives that we're going to have to justify in some manner. In that light, what would your take-home message be to our audience about markers and their use in the emergency department? Increasing sensitivity, incredible sensitivity, but is it really getting us where we want to be at? Recall that no single marker used alone has sufficient sensitivity or specificity to identify or exclude acute MI within six hours after symptom onset. What we have now, there are no markers which can exclude or identify non-ischemic acute coronary syndrome. So it is truly still in the history and the physical. It has to be in the history. And if you have a patient, you're having a tough time getting a good history, then do what's best for the patient. I think with the data we have now, and according to the ASEP clinical policy, we can safely rule out acute MI with a single negative CKMB mass or troponin 8 to 12 hours after symptom onset or with a negative myoglobin in conjunction with a negative CKMB mass or negative troponin when measured at baseline and 90 minutes in patients presenting less than eight hours after symptom onset. In other words, the delta markers. But you still have to do what's best for the patient. I think if there's a greater than 1% chance of acute coronary syndrome, I'm going to recommend admission to that patient. Our thanks goes to Dr. Joe Lex from Temple University, who's been our guest. We've been discussing cardiac markers at the bedside, diagnostic testing, and clinical judgment. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to a special segment on heart health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening.